Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, we come before you and ask that you would speak. Lord, I pray that I'd not get in the way of what you plan to do, but that you would touch our hearts afresh in Jesus' precious name for the extension of his kingdom and for his glory alone. Amen. In the years after the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians, God continued to send his prophets to the southern kingdom of Judah, warning that they too would be carried away into bondage if they didn't repent and return to him. Prophets like Jeremiah, among others, faithfully delivered God's message, while false prophets constantly reassured the people that God would never allow his city or his temple to be destroyed as Jeremiah was predicting. Many desperately wanted to believe that Judah would be spared. After all, Judah was still standing a hundred years after the northern kingdom had fallen. But in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar's armies appeared at the gates of Jerusalem, just as Jeremiah had predicted, and the world as Judah had known it was completely turned upside down. The book of Daniel chapter 1 records what happened when the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of his enemy Nebuchadnezzar. The king of Babylon not only plundered the city, but in verse 3, scripture says he ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Can you imagine how disorienting this was for Daniel and his friends? They went from being princes in Judah to being hostages of a pagan king and his wicked purposes. They were completely cut off from their homeland. Every hope they had for their futures was totally dashed. They must have wondered, what in the world is going on? Nebuchadnezzar had some very specific purposes for his new captives. He began by assigning them food from his own table. Not only would that soften their resolve to resist their captivity, but it would also serve to separate them from their religious roots 
that were anchored in the Jewish food laws. He also commanded that they be re-educated in the ways of the Babylonians and be forced to speak their captors' language. Even their very names were changed from names that glorified the living God of Israel to those that glorified the gods of their abductors, the Babylonians. Daniel was now called Belteshazzar, Hananiah became known as Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah was given the name Abednego. Every element of Nebuchadnezzar's training was designed to emphasize his power over these young men. He aimed to separate them from all they'd known and press them into the mold of the world in which they were now living, the godless pagan world of Babylon. He had no thought for their desires, their hopes, or their well-being except as it ensured their usefulness to him. But God had his purposes even in this. Over the years, the Babylonians would take three groups of captives from Judah, and shortly after Daniel's group had been taken, the prophet Jeremiah wrote a letter to those now living in Babylon to encourage them in their trials. He reminded them of the message God had given them through his preaching, that their exile was going to last for 70 years before they would be allowed to return. And he told them to settle down in Babylon, build houses and vineyards, marry and have children. He also told them to pray for and seek peace for their new home until then. And he reminded them of God's heart for them in Jeremiah 29 verses 11 to 13, saying, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Everything the Lord allows in our lives is for a good purpose, to bless us and not to harm us, to bring us closer to him and cause us to seek him. You see, these Jewish captives in Babylon would be the very ones who would one day return to build the temple and re-establish the nation. By sending them to Babylon, God was preserving them as a remnant for his purposes. In a sense, he was protecting them from the harsh judgment that was falling on those left behind in Judah. It may surprise you to know that many Bible scholars believe that Daniel was only around 15 years old when he was taken captive, and yet Daniel responded to his radically changed circumstances in a remarkable way. Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 reveals, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. 
There is no sign that Daniel gave in either to bitterness or to despair. He simply determined in his own heart how he was going to conduct himself in these new circumstances. He purposed that he would not defile himself by partaking of the king's wine or meat or delicacies, as it says according to some versions. Have you ever wondered why he chose to resist the food, given all the other pagan oppressions being forced upon him? Daniel knew that the Jewish laws about food were meant to identify him as belonging to God. He knew that much of what he would be served would be unclean according to those laws. He also recognized that the food coming from the king's table would have been sacrificed to pagan gods before it reached their plates. Eating the king's food was participating in and identifying with the culture in ways he simply could not do. He would not compromise his identity as a child of God, no matter the consequences. Can you imagine the courage it took to refuse the provision the king had personally selected for them? But Daniel resolved not to defile himself and to trust God despite what had happened to him and his friends. And God was at work because verse 9 reveals that God caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men? In your age, the king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. The following verses, if you went on to read them, would reveal that God honored Daniel and his friends for their faithfulness. For not only were they healthier than their fellow trainees at the end of ten days, but God gave them even more skill and wisdom than the others. And as they entered the king's service, verse 20 of chapter 1 tells us that in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. What grace God shows us, for as we honor him, he will honor us. I love how this chapter ends. Daniel chapter 1 verse 21 says that Daniel remained there in the king's service until the first year of King Cyrus. That covers the entire span of the captivity, the rest of the 70 years Jeremiah had prophesied. Cyrus was the ruler who released the people to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Daniel began with a determination to be faithful in the midst of his trial, and he continued in that faithfulness for the rest of his life. 
we would do well to learn from him. Though our circumstances may be very different, I'm sure that many of us know what it is to have our hopes for the future shattered in some way, and many of us have experienced great hardship that has not been of our own making. However, our choice is the same as that of Daniel and his three friends. Will we choose to turn away from the Lord in bitter regret, or will we seek him with all our hearts and serve him wherever he has planted us? As he did with Daniel, God will give the grace to sustain us and accomplish his purpose in and through us, even in the most trying circumstances that we face. Daniel, too, relates another instance of God's grace and faithfulness. One night, Nebuchadnezzar had a troubling dream, and anxious to know what it meant, he called together all of the wise men and sorcerers in his employ. He suspected, though, that they might not tell him the truth of the dream out of fear for their lives, and so he devised a test to reveal if they were really hearing from their gods at all. He refused to tell any of them what the dream itself had been, insisting that if they were truly wise, they would not only be able to tell him what the dream had been, but also what it meant. This was an impossible task, and when they had no answer for him, Nebuchadnezzar decided to put all the wise men in his kingdom to death, and that included Daniel and his three friends. Daniel urgently asked his friends to pray. He knew that God was the only one who could give the king the answers he needed. So they did. They prayed fervently, and God revealed to Daniel both the dream and its meaning. When Daniel appeared before the king, he was careful to give all the glory to God. He told Nebuchadnezzar that no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Daniel also told him that God had revealed the mystery to him, not because Daniel had greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but because God wanted the king to know what his dream meant. Our God is the God of heaven who wants to reveal himself to us. What grace! He doesn't hide himself away like the false gods of Nebuchadnezzar's magicians. He doesn't remain silent. Rather, he makes himself known to those who seek him. The book of Romans reminds us that he first revealed himself in creation, in the things his hands have made. The book of Hebrews reminds us that in times past, he spoke through his prophets, further revealing his nature and his purposes. And then, in what Hebrews calls these last days, God has finally and completely revealed himself to us through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has always reached out in love to make himself known to all people everywhere. We see that here. God revealed the dream to Daniel not only to save the lives of the four young men from Judah, but also so that a proud pagan king might be introduced to the living God. 
So what did Nebuchadnezzar see in his dream? He saw an enormous statue with a head of gold, but with its torso, arms, legs and feet made of different materials. Then the entire statue was destroyed by a huge stone that came from heaven that grew to cover the entire earth. And what did that vision mean? God was showing Nebuchadnezzar not just his own immediate future, but the future of the world to come. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was the head of gold, but it would be replaced by others. However, no kingdom of men would endure. All would eventually come to an end, and only the kingdom that came from heaven would remain. It was the ultimate big picture vision for this proud man to grasp, and at least momentarily, he recognized Daniel's God to be the living God who rules and reigns among men. And he humbly threw himself down on the ground before the 17-year-old captive he'd thought to use for his own purposes. Though young, Daniel was already showing himself to be the servant of God, not just the servant of the king. This was not the only encounter, though, in which a king glimpsed the power of the almighty God through Daniel's life and testimony. I want us to look at one final glimpse of God's grace that came towards the end of Daniel's life, approximately 65 years after Daniel chapter 2. Three generations of Babylonian rulers had come and gone, and Daniel, now in his 80s, was still serving as one of the area governors. But as Nebuchadnezzar's dream had foretold, Another empire had arisen, and Darius the Mede now ruled in Babylon. When Darius set up his new administration, he placed Daniel in one of the three highest positions in the kingdom, putting him in charge of the other two governors and of the 120 local rulers, or satraps as they were known. The king had so much confidence in Daniel's integrity that he was planning to promote him over the entire kingdom. Of course, the other officials all quickly realized that with Daniel in charge, there would be no opportunity to line their own pockets or feather their own nests because he was faithful. Beyond that, many of these men were likely Medes or Persians themselves who couldn't abide the idea of being under an outsider from the previous government, especially one who had come from a weak and defeated group of people. And so they decided to move against Daniel. However, they could find nothing in his 65 years of service to accuse him with. Not one instance of dishonesty, unfairness or immorality. Nothing. And what an indictment of the deviousness of the human heart. Because when Daniel's enemies could succeed in no other way, they manipulated the laws of the land and the thought processes of the king to work their purposes. They went to the king behind Daniel's back and warned that he really needed to do something to unite his very large and diverse empire. 
Their suggestion was that he issue a decree saying that no one could pray to any other god but him for 30 days on penalty of death. Now, I understand that this may seem unusual to us, but it was not uncommon in those days for rulers to be considered as a god by those whom they ruled over. And so the trap was set. They very slyly suggested that Darius put the order in writing and sign it because they knew only too well that once this was done, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, the decree could not then be altered in any way, not even by the king himself. Daniel responded just as the schemers had hoped. Daniel chapter 6 verse 10 explains, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. In full knowledge of the decree, Daniel continued to pray openly to the living God, just as he always had done since his youth. Naturally, his adversaries were quick to report him to the king. For his part, Daniel didn't protest their accusations, nor did he fight against the edict. The faithful, honest, innocent Daniel submitted to the sentence that had been pronounced, death in a den of lions. And don't you know that even there in that pit, amidst the ravenous lions, he continued praying, peacefully trusting God to either protect him or to take him home. However, inside the palace, it was a different story. Darius was beside himself. He was horrified at what had been done to Daniel, but he was powerless to change the punishment. And so the king spent a miserable night fasting and praying for this man he so admired. Early the next morning, the king ran to the pit and cried, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And he was astounded to hear Daniel's voice reply, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. Truly, this is the grace of God. He is able to protect those whose hope is in him, who serve him from a pure and faithful heart. Darius then issued a new proclamation, this one praising Daniel's God. In Daniel 6, 26-27, Darius declared, He is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed, his dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves he performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. How about you, my friend? Do you know this mighty, glorious God of grace who saves? 
Please do not leave our study of his grace still unsure of your relationship with him. Daniel's experience in chapter 6 foreshadows the death of the Messiah, and it paints a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Daniel, Jesus was falsely accused by men whose jealous, bitter hearts led them to twist the laws and manipulate the decision-makers to work their purposes. Like Daniel, Christ made no protest or defense. He did not try to protect or deliver himself as he was given over to death. But unlike Daniel, Jesus wasn't rescued. He was crucified, died and was buried. And during his three days in the tomb, he ravaged Hades, ending the power of death. That's really what Easter is all about. He has destroyed death by his death. And when his friends ran to his tomb early in the morning of the third day, they found he was alive. Jesus Christ conquered death for us by dying on the cross for our sins and rising again so that we could have eternal life. Glory to God for his grace. Glory to God for his salvation. This section of the book of Daniel ends with Daniel continuing to serve and prosper in the reigns of both Darius and Cyrus, the king who allowed the people to return to Jerusalem. You can find that in Daniel 6 verse 28. Daniel never did make it back to Judah. Tradition says he died in one of the palaces of the king in the same land to which he had been taken captive as a 15-year-old young man. But there can be no doubt that Daniel fulfilled God's purposes for him, that God placed him in those very courts to be his ambassador. Daniel's life of integrity, faithfulness, and excellence brought the pagan kings he served face to face with the living God of Israel and paved the way for the remnant to return to Jerusalem and reestablish their nation. Above all, Daniel's life shows us that the grace of God is always present, even in the worst circumstances always working out his purposes for our good and his glory. Over the past six weeks, we've seen many glimpses of God's grace in these Old Testament figures, haven't we? Through the life of Abraham, we learn that God keeps his word to us even when we stumble that he blesses us when we choose him over the world and when we trust him completely, he provides us with salvation. Joshua revealed that God equips those he calls and gives us his promises to empower our obedience. He is with us even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances of life and he brings a testimony out of the trial that he will use for good. Rahab taught us that God prepares hearts to seek him and includes in his family all those who put their trust in him. That he is far less concerned about our past than he is about our future. And that those who are marked by the blood of the Lamb of God are accepted as his. 
Elijah proved that God speaks to his people through his word and answers prayer in often miraculous ways. But it's not all about our performance. He understands our frailty and God cares about us enough to work even in the silences of life. In the life of Jehoshaphat, God showed that he treats us as beloved sons. He allows our choices and lovingly disciplines us to bring us back to his path when we stray. He honors us when we honor his word, and when we focus on him and his glory, our battles will be his battles, and he will fight for us. And finally, this lesson from Daniel has taught us that God is in control, and even when our world is turned upside down, he is always working to fulfill his purposes. Daniel also reminds us that God reveals himself to those who seek him. He gives wisdom to those who ask and is fully able to protect us as we serve him. I hope you will never again allow anyone to say that the God of the Old Testament is a mean, vindictive, uncaring God. He is, always has been, and always will be a loving, kind, generous, and welcoming God who longs for us to be in relationship with him. May God bless you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are indeed a God of grace who loves us. Thank you so much for Jesus and the fact that his death on the cross has changed everything. It is in his precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.